Namo tasa bhakavato arahato samma samputtasa Namo tasa bhakavato arahato samma samputtasa Namo tasa bhakavato arahato samma samputtasa Putang tamang sankang kunutarang upachayang namasamin. Is that, is that loud? Can everyone outside hear me? It's okay. okay. <clears throat> Now, today is um, a unique day, a very much overused word, but it is a unique day in my monastic career. It's the first time in 35 years that I've um, participated in the Pawarana ceremony in a different monastery to the one in which I entered the Rains Retreat. And um, as for many years now I've been living alone, this is a very uh, enjoyable occasion for me and one brings back a lot of old memories uh, from previous lifetime when I was living at Wat Nanashat. And um, I think here also, as I understand, it's that um, usually the custom would be to invite all of the monks and novices uh, to give Dhamma talks. And in, in Wat Nana Chat, of course, there's the extra kind of frisson amongst the uh, monks and novices because very few of them can speak Thai. And so uh, getting up onto the Dhamma seat and giving a talk um, is even more challenging than it might be here. And some of them very bravely try to start off in Thai at least and, and then switch to English when they run out of words. But, the, um, but all the lay people um, make a special effort to, to be there for them all through the night and when they run out of things to say, then people shout out questions like, where do you come from? And why did you become a monk? And the favorite is, can you eat sticky rice? That's <laughs> of major, major import there too. Um, <clears throat> and it's a kind of an end of, end of term feel in the monastery. Um, the, many of the monks will be after the katina will be leaving and going off in different directions. 
and um, the the we we used to do this in so many um, different ways. Um, we, we used to start off going down the line, and then at some point, I don't know whether it was still, we started to do it with taking the uh, doing it more like a lottery. Otherwise, the the poor people at the end of the line are sitting there, sort of all tense and worried all through the night. So um, we would have it a bit more random. And uh, my first pansa as a monk in 1980, I was staying in a little monastery out in the countryside. And there were a number of teenage novices there. And, and they were all very keyed up because for most of them, most of them were from the local village and they knew their mums were going to be there as well um, and often their dads. And, uh, <clears throat> and one of my first memories of these um, Pansa nights uh, was of this little novice who'd spent at least two weeks, um, hours a day on his, his Jonkron Pass uh, memorizing um, the whole of an Ajahn Mahabur Desana. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you know Ajahn Mahabur is the, uh, the most fierce of all the forest Ajahns. And this was a little boy of about 11 years old, you know, sort of skinny and, and uh, um, tiny. And so it came his time and he got up onto the, the Dhamma seat at a tamat. And it was like his voice dropped two octaves and, and it just, he metamorphosed into like a, a miniature Ajahn Mahabur. And he, and he had all the gestures and, you know, it was really, and he, and he, and he spoke really fast and, and he was going, and then he got to that point, you know, about 15 minutes in when suddenly he stopped and he froze, you know, and he, and he looked around him, you know, it's like a sort of a, a kryptonite lizard had jumped on his shoulder or something. And he, um, and he, he couldn't, and then he looked down and he saw his mom and he saw, and he started to cry. <laughs> and there was a tears and he, and he got down from it. So that was the most memorable of my. <laughs> and then I've uh, uh, jumped forward a few years, another time monastery. And a friend of mine, same um, punch, same reigns as me, Thai monk. And he was also, um, you get like three and four, five years as a monk. A lot of monks just get, they just want to give talks. They want to teach, you know. So, so um, you try to stop them doing that. But then like the Ork, the, uh, the night of Ork Pansaras, when they get their chance, and he'd been same thing, walking meditation and 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 preparing and and a, a really big thing for him. There was a lot of people there, hundred two hundred people, and so it was his turn. And he got up and he was, you know, he looked the part. He's a big, very big for a Thai monk, and and um, and he launched into this really profound discourse, you know, and it was going into the Paticca Samuppada and all this kind of stuff. And he was so bound up. Unfortunately, um, he had um, a bit of a cold, 
And uh, so he, he was giving all this dhamma, this really high dhamma, and, and quite unconsciously. he was. And so the so next leg of the particular samu part is like this. <laughs> and he go on. And, and the contrast between the dhamma he was teaching and this, you know, this, this, this sort of saffron robe and going silver up here, you know. <laughs> and... And he couldn't understand why he wasn't getting the response that um, he was expecting. Yeah, so we... Um, one of the advantages of ordaining in the Thai Sangha rather than the Burmese Sangha is you're allowed to laugh. In Burma, it's this real taboo about monks laughing. So you have to sort of be, you know, if you're a proper monk, you know, you can, you can smile a little bit, but... Um, here we're allowed to smile, but we're not supposed to show our teeth. But then if you get, if you get really senior, you can do that as well. Um, <clears throat> so we, we have, um, you know, these times when we have great time. And Ajahn Chah, of course, uh, teaching the Westerners um, was very well aware of the value of sense of humor in, in teaching, particularly um, as the Western uh, monks um, tended to tend to suffer from a um, certain amount of self-importance, and <clears throat> that um, use of humor is a very good uh, solvent of self-importance. And it's not that Ajahn Shah told jokes as such. He was just able to um, point out the the humorous side of things, the humorous side of life, and to enable um, the Western monks in particular, to laugh at themselves. In fact, this did cause some kind of jealousy amongst the Thai monks because when he was with the Thai monks, you know, he was a lot more sort of the traditional Thai Ajahn. Um, and um, when then the, all the Western monks would be there, everybody's laughing and looking really relaxed and, and um, they would think, why can't, why can't we have that? Um, but he, Ajahn Chah was like the, the doctor, you know, he, he realized what the, um, the antidote um, for each person or each group of persons would be. And somebody said to him, can you speak any, any languages other than Thai? And, and he said, I can speak lots of languages. I can speak the language of the villagers, I can speak the language of merchants, I can speak the language of soldiers, I can speak the language of civil servants, he said, I can speak lots of languages. So he had that ability to adapt his teaching and he didn't need to tell jokes um, in, in, a, in a talk for, for people to, to enjoy them. I mean, this, um, it's, some monks will do that, you know, just tell, um, tell jokes for a cheap laugh. <clears throat> I mean, I, I could you know, say something like I heard that, that uh, a scarecrow got awarded the Nobel Prize for being outstanding in his field, but that wouldn't be an appropriate thing to, you know, to put into a dumb talk, so I wouldn't do that. Um, but, um, and it's the same with, you know, with any... A teacher that they um, are able to clarify the Dhamma, inspire um, through their words to energize the people who listen to it. But fourthly, uh, the 
the quality of a teacher that the the Buddha uh, uh, the Buddha pointed to was um, the quality of gladdening the listeners. So you, you probably observed so many of the of the discourses at the end. The monks were gladdened by the talk, and that's the um, the the beauty of the Dhamma, the beauty of the truth that for those of us with uh, a moral foundation and with uh, um, an appreciation of and a love of truth and virtue, that hearing and listening um, to uh, someone whose own life is devoted to development of truth and virtue um, describing those qualities, we feel gladdened. And that sense of gladdening and being able to gladden your own mind is an uh, important point, uh, part of Dhamma practice. So the um, listening to the Dhamma and being gladdened by the Dhamma of great teachers is a wonderful thing. You know, the opportunity to uh, to listen to the Dhamma and to read the Dhamma and to hear Dhammas is is um, wonderful. But we need also to listen to our own Dhamma and learn how to be gladdened by it. And the um, the meditation techniques which employ discursive thought in a in a disciplined um, way are very effective means of gladdening the mind. The um, practice of meditation really takes off with the abandonment of the hindrances and the quality of mind um, that is prominent in one who uh, goes beyond the hindrances is pamoja or the sense of intense well-being and that matures into piti bliss but pamoja is uh, a good start so whatever meditation technique uh, you use um, it has to go through this path of pamoja well-being and sometimes um, plugging away at the uh, mindfulness of breathing is um, unable to produce that pamoja. And so we can uh, bring to mind certain, uh, certain truths and perceptions uh, which can very swiftly and effectively uh, produce that feeling. One is uh, the, the reflections which come under the, the umbrella term of jakanusati. It's the recollection of, of jaka, of goodness, and your act, the acts of kindness and generosity and renunciation and sacrifice that you have um, performed in your life. And I think there is um, you know, a, a, an admirable... Um, sense of modesty in most meditators and a fear 
uh, of getting puffed up and or thinking we're special, but that that's often taken too far. And we uh, don't rejoice in the goodness in our lives as much as we should or could. And the willingness and effort to rejoice in our goodness is not um, a means of repressing or denying the defilements in our heart. Um, it's not taking an overly sunny view of our, of our mind. But we do have this resource within us, which I feel is very much underused. So if we cast our mind back to any occasion in which we have given something without expectation of reward, I would. Uh, I was just. It's very apparent that we feel an immediate sense of uplift and well-being, even though that particular act may not have been particularly significant, um, or um, anything that we might think particularly special in a worldly sense. But even if it took place five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the moment we, we recollect in tranquility that goodness and that virtue, the mind is uplifted, the sense of well-being is produced, and the suppression of the hindrances can take place. The reflection, recollection of sila um, is similarly powerful. If we keep all five precepts well, and we keep them um, not because uh, we're afraid of some punishment, um, not out of desire for some heavenly rebirth, um, but we keep them because uh, we recognize that they form the most um, effective and um, maturing kind of training and education of our conduct, one which creates a sense of trust, harmony, safety, um, mutual respect in our families and communities, and one which um, reduces eliminates the sense of uh, guilt and anxiety about our actions and um, allows us to be a good friend to ourselves. We begin to like ourselves because we have chosen freely uh, to restrict our behavior and our speech and we are able um, to maintain the standard that we've taken upon ourselves voluntarily, even in the midst of um, difficulties and temptations. So a sense of self-confidence um, that comes from 
being able to maintain a standard of conduct independently of surroundings. It is that which um, gives us sense of well-being. And in, <clears throat> I think in, in America, you have this great, um, really good external um, aids to keeping the five precepts. Every time you cross a road, you have these red hands saying, keep the five precepts like this. So, so remember that every time you cross the road, remember that's a reminder of, of the precepts. And keeping them and recollecting them and rejoicing in sila, a good sila. This is something which is, um, produces um, this sense of well-being and, and happiness. The, um, so in, in, in meditation practice, when we see that the, the going beyond the five hindrances is the, um, the first preliminary goal, then um, the whole uh, discussion and the whole the distinctions and arguments about samatha and vipassana, um, I think, fade into insignificance because if you, um, for instance, if you if you are applying your mind to a meditation object, um, and your mind is really disturbed, and you look at the causes for that disturbance, and you see that the, your inability to focus on the meditation object um, is the result of some careless, harmful um, speech. So you conclude from that, well, yes, there is a real um, connection between the care and attention that I put into my daily life and the way that I relate to the people around me and my experience in meditation. So that's wisdom, isn't it? That's, that's a, a wisdom that has arisen, understanding that has arisen through the effort to concentrate or to, be, to focus upon an object. So um, we can say that there's the, the samatha aspect and the vipassana aspect or the, the, the cooling and the, and the wisdom aspect there together. Similarly, if, if the mind does put down all of its obsessions and preoccupations temporarily um, and experience um, a state of um, clear, bright tranquility, then um, coming out of that state then uh, and reflecting on the experience of that state, then one's attitude to worldly pleasures changes. We, you know, we've all paid lip service to, we've all heard since we were children that true happiness lies within, but nobody really believes it. Not until you've experienced it. You, you can't believe it really. When it comes to the crunch, um, you go for the easy pleasure. 
But when you've, uh, it, when you've experienced that inner peace and the, the happiness, the, the refined and, and sublime happiness, then the normal pleasures of life um, seem much less attractive. It's not that um, you want to give them up altogether, or you're indifferent to them, um, but they're not so compelling. You don't have that same kind of neediness. You don't have that sense that you must have these things or else, or they're, they're not so strong that you're willing to harm others or yourself in your pursuit of them. So this is a, a life-changing um, experience. So is it, you know, is it samatha or is it vipassana? You know, if, if your whole value system is changing, your goals, your way of life is changing um, through an internal experience during meditation, do we call that um, peace or wisdom? Or, as Ajahn Chah said, it's just called dhamma practice. It's the dhamma. And we don't have to make those hard and fast distinctions. But sometimes you're, you, you look at your mind and you say, what does my mind need right now? And sometimes you know, it wants to think. You know, and you, you put your mind on your breath, it rebels. It's just, it just doesn't want that. And you say, okay, fair enough. Um, I'll employ one of the meditation techniques which use thinking. You want to think, you can think, but you have to think about these things in this order, in a in a disciplined way. And when you think in that way, then the agitation of the mind um, reduce, is, reduces um, and passes away. And then you can, if you wish, return to the breath or the, the object that um, you, you usually employ. I, I have a, um, a meditation um, tip or technique, I think, that um, is good fun. So this is a kind of fun night, so I'll tell you a fun meditation. Um, some of you, probably a few of you, know there's a very well-known BBC radio program. So maybe here you don't know it, but it's called Just a Minute. And Just a Minute... Um, features uh, various articulate um, guests who are given the task of talking um, for 60 seconds, for one minute, without pause, without hesitation on a particular subject. And the moment they pause or repeat themselves or hesitate, then there's a buzzer and someone else takes over. So it's, it's a very fun um, program. But... Um, why I'm telling you this is, you know, often we can get this idea that thought is, a, is an enemy and um, get very oppressed with thought or feel like meditation is really hard work and, 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 and uh, tough because we have to deal with this thinking and, you know, we don't really want to anyway, but you know, to do it like bitter medicine. But what I would suggest is rather than meditate and think, you're not going to think, Give yourself the task of thinking. This is a thinking meditation. 
sink in a stream for 60 seconds without pause, without hesitation, without repetition, and see how long you can do it. It's almost impossible. Um, and, and what's really interesting is that if you just try to keep the thinking going, we, after more than a few seconds, it's gibberish. And you have this interesting uh, experience of consciously, um, intentionally thinking gibberish. So that, that sense of consciously thinking, you know, is something which appears so much like self. You know, it's, 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 it's so much like who I am. But you're, you're, you're thinking with this strong sense of this is me thinking, but the content of what you're thinking is, is utter rubbish. And it's, it's something you should try. It's really to have some perspective on things and, and, and to, um, to realize to, to what extent how when we are thinking in, in ways which we think are more rational are probably not much different from that fact. Now, the, <clears throat> the practice uh, of Dhamma um, is uh, not to be restricted, of course, to posture. But if that's the case, then, then what, is, what is the overall kind of structure or approach uh, to Dhamma practice that, that would include all of our experiences in daily life? And um, I believe that the... Um, that a very useful structure is one given by the Buddha himself, and it's the four right efforts. So in our Dhamma practice today, rather than thinking how many, uh, how many minutes did I sit or how many hours did I sit, then we're, we're looking at it in terms of effort. So your effort is to um, prevent the arising of unarisen um, akusala dhammas, and when that's not possible, or when some defilement has um, crept into the mind, then uh, the effort is to eliminate that unwholesome dhamma. The effort is to create, bring into the mind wholesome dhammas that have not yet arisen, and to care and nurture those that have arisen, uh, and to bring them to maturity. So that is a practice which is, um, is possible in every situation. Uh, you can always, wherever you are, whoever you're with, whatever you're doing, you can always be putting in effort into one of those four categories. So if you're in a, you're in a, um, you're in a busy, um, uh, place, workplace in the city, um, then your effort is to um, protect the mind. So what are the kinds of unwholesome um, dhammas that could come into the mind? You're driving a car where well, you might get irritated with people who are selfish when they drive cars and, and um, um, uh, act in, in unskillful and, and um, har harmful ways. So how can you prevent your mind from being irritated 
um, by events and by people who are, by all normal standards, irritating. Say, uh, so this is you make this kind of resolution today. I will not be irritated by irritating people. That's your spiritual goal, you know. Or you go into you go into a meeting, and you know there's this uh, this man or this woman in this meeting. And they're, they're really obnoxious. They're so aggressive and overbearing and this and that. And, and you lose your cool with them every time. You tell yourself you won't. This, now this making this, this is your goal. This is your dumber practice today. Um, how can I, uh, how can I, uh, use my mind? What kind of reflections? What kind of, um, practice? will protect my mind from um, aversion. Or you're in a um, shopping mall, and then how can I protect my mind from greed and from... Uh, so uh, it becomes a, a game and uh, a sport and an interest. But having you, you can't just be mindful. You have to be mindful of something. Um, you have to, uh, the you have to recollect something, and clarifying before um, the case, before the event. This is the work of sampajanya, which works together with mindfulness. You're clarifying what exactly do you want to be doing um, in this particular situation? What are the dangers? What are the unwholesome dhammas that usually uh, often occur in this kind of environment and how can I protect my mind from them in the best way but given that I may well not be uh, completely successful what am I going to do if I do if that does occur uh, what skillful means um, can I employ what are the, what are the kind of wholesome dhammas can I can I bring into my mind in this situation so um, and if there are wholesome dhammas there, how can I protect them? So, you know, going into a busy city and say, oh, yeah, this is, this is a really good opportunity to practice sense restraint. Yeah. Or when I, I like um, in, in airports, when everybody's rushing around, um, I like to, to try to think of specific good things to, to wish for people rather than just sort of, Meta, you know, I see, I see someone who's rushing along, and I think, sort of, may you be free from impatience. And then I saw, uh, you know, and, and somebody else is um, is looking really confused and lost, and sort of, may they find their way home. Um, um, and then and I see a, like a young couple walking along, hand in hand, and I say, well. May you not be separated from the happiness you're experiencing, and um, and and so this it becomes a, a game. It's really good fun. You, know, you have to be quite quick, quick. You sort of people coming, going, and trying to um, to 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 come up with specific um, beautiful things to wish for people. And so, rather than being frazzled as you as you go through this busy place, you can really feel refreshed um, and so you can um, you, you can also have you know rather than just the specific ones you you can have all these really 
nice things that that you can you you have a sort of a, a fund of them. So you know, walking along, say, may no one ever treat you with contempt. May no one ever treat you with disrespect. Uh, may may people always believe you when you tell the truth. And so you can you can, when you're in a um, you know, you've got a few minutes, you know, rather than checking emails and doing all this kind of stuff, you know, just come up with a few more sort of beautiful things that you can wish for strangers that you'll never see again in your life. And this is, you know, just a practical uh, way of um, protecting the mind from unwholesome dhammas, from, um, from developing wholesome dhammas, um, as uh, <clears throat> developing a sense restraint, you know, not looking left, looking right, not looking at advertisements. Um, you make a resolution that if, you're, if your eyes ever caught by an advertisement and you lose your mindfulness staring at it, that you won't um, buy any of that brand for the next week, you know. Things like that. Um, so... It's, uh, you know, waking up and, and putting effort into your life and um, realizing that, you know, there we don't have to be the, um, the victim of circumstances. So we, we all within, have within us the capacity to, um, to clarify and to gladden our minds. And, um, of course, the, the wish to give and share is um, is a, 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 you know wonderful uh, pick me up, and and that when that's developed, you know the um, it's such a it's a, such a jewel of the mind. There's a wonderful verse by the um, Indian monk Shantideva, and he's saying that some people's minds are like braters, like hungry ghosts, and others are like devas. And he says the the praetor's mind is that something something comes and sort of you think maybe I should share it and and give some away and then you think but if I was to give that away then what would I have left for myself? This is the like the the praetor mind and then the deva mind is well this is really nice but if I was to take that for myself what would I have left to give to others? You see so it's it's a very different state of mind. Um, and when you develop that, that mind of, of dana and, and chaka, it just arises spontaneously and naturally, effortlessly. Um, and that's a, a sign of great spiritual maturity, isn't it? When, whenever, you, whenever you see somebody, you hear something, you, you know, I'm sure many of you feel this, you, you hear about some somebody doing something really good or some charity or something, and you immediately think, oh, I'd like to contribute to that. I'd like to, have, I'd like to be able to support that. And just after a while, it just becomes really natural, doesn't it? You just want to, to, to give and give and give. And um, that is, um, you know, long term, you know, that's such a wonderful uh, quality of, of the heart. And the, the dhammas, which the four dhammas, which are instrumental both in heavenly rebirth and in stream entry, so surely of, of interest to everyone, are satha, faith, 
sila, uh, jaka, and panya. So these are so developing, the, making these goals of our life. And um, you know, one great um, example of, of jaka here tonight, Lumpur Pasano. I mean, I've um, experienced the uh, fruits of all his um, jaka and devotion and and uh, sacrifice over. The, I mean, Ajahn Pasno and I we 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 very close, but we are very um, different. He's uh, he's uh, very. Pra- I'm hopeless at, at almost everything practical, and he's really competent. You know, <laughs> like if. If we were both on a ship and it and it shipwrecked, okay, and we were and we were uh, and we were washed up onto different islands, you know, I'd be dead, you know, with, <laughs> within a day. Within a couple of days, Lumpur would have trained these monkeys to go out and pick <laughs> and pick bananas and offer to them offer them to him before twelve o'clock. And, <laughs> That's the that's the difference between us in a nutshell. Um, yeah. um, um, I am I am I am the foremost monk in the whole Wapapong tradition at uselessness in building. I'm I'm absolutely incompetent. Um, I'm the I'm the kind of monk who couldn't even ch- couldn't even repair the chain on a on a push bike. You know I'm. Uh, I'm just uh, absolutely hopeless. I mean, it's it's just best for everyone that I live by myself, really. Um, <laughs> but um, but I do appreciate um, people who are competent and and um, sacrifice. So I I'm really happy to um, be here uh, with my my group and to uh, offer some support for all the hard work. Uh, which is is going in here, and um, I, I was um, thinking earlier. Uh, Lumpur, I heard this story before, but um, it's uh, one that stays with me. It's when I was um, a younger monk, not so so. I <clears throat> it was one sh- head shaving day, and I decided to see whether I could shave my head with just like a small glass of water and a big razor. And um, and I was so proud of myself because uh, you know I did it, and and I and I was walking into the you know I was feeling kind of you know superior to all these other monks using all this water and proper razors and everything. I sort of swagger in and sit down, and uh, and Lumpur says, "You've got a bit of hair behind your ear," <laughs> and I couldn't help myself. I said, "Do you realise?" that I just shaved my head with a big razor and just that amount of water. You know, and, it's, and he said, yeah, but you've still got a bit of hair behind your ear. <laughs> so I bowed and went out and, and shaved that bit off. And so, I, I, and so, um, so friends, I got a very important teaching uh, from that. And... Um, uh, I mean, that's the way that um, you know you you sort of make peace with these kinds of uh, embarrassing um, events. You you try and get a teaching out of it somehow. So, this, 
um, the teaching I got from this uh, was that, well, I'm, I, this is quite an important point, actually, and I'm going to um, just bring it up a level by referring to the suttas and the, the Buddha um, recounting the, the Dhammas, which were directly responsible uh, for his realization of Nibbana. Okay, couldn't be any more higher than that. And uh, one of them was unremitting effort, and the other was discontent, discontent with the wholesome dhammas that he'd already um, uh, achieved. And so this sense of never being, you know, being completely satisfied with the material support, but never satisfied with the <coughs> with the uh, spiritual progress, but always pushing on further and further. So you know, for us, of course, we have the teachings of, of the Buddha as a reference and, as a, and we have great teachers, but the Bodhisattva didn't have that at all. In fact, his, you know, his first two meditation teachers who were like the top men in India this time, they both said, you've, you know everything that you need to know. You know, you're, you've done it all. Now you can be a teacher. And he didn't believe them. And so he was always pushing on, pushing on. So even though um, his mind must be already before the enlightenment, must was so pure um, and so brilliant, he still pushed on further. Um, so even though like 99% of your head is shaved, you see, you just got this one little bit behind your ear, you, you still have, that's, uh, you can't just rest on your laurels and be proud of the fact that you've done this good job on your head. Yes, I know it's a bit of a tortured analogy, but... Um, <laughs> anyway, the... Um, the, the point that I, that I really wanted to, to stress this evening was to create a um, skillful um, framework for understanding your practice and uh, not to see it too narrowly. And uh, the, the four right efforts, I think, provide a very useful um, reflection uh, and help in that. And the... Um, The practice is one, I, I would say, more than anything else of observation and the, giving yourself the ability to learn from experience. And th this, is, this is why, and you know, not to be um, Puritan, but the, the problem with um, the technologies we have these days and with um, line, do, 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 I don't know if in America you have it, like all the Thai people have this line, the thing is that um, that you're always following uh, the stream of restlessness um, and you're, you're never able just to be, you know, you're always about to do something or um, having nothing to do or nothing in your mind um, is a, a lack, and you're always moving on to the next thing and the next bit of information, the next um, bit of stimulation. But the the present moment, you know, it's not that being in the present is the goal of Buddhist practice. Um, 
the my analogy here is that the present moment is the classroom or is the laboratory. If you want to learn the Four Noble Truths, you have to study the Four Noble Truths um, as a direct experience, not as a philosophy or a theory. Um, the only place that you can study and learn um, and experience the Four Noble Truths is the present moment. So if the present moment is, um, you know, is a problem, you know, you're, you're always trying to get away from it into the next thing, um, you're never able to comprehend uh, the noble truth of dukkha and to see its cause. But the moment that you can um, be clear and bright and wakeful in the present moment, then everything um, becomes clear and plain. And you know, today is the, the end of the rains retreat, and it, it's an ending. And we, we're, we're naturally much more interested in beginnings than endings. But the wisdom comes from uh, opening our minds to endings. And in every day, we experience so many little endings, some uh, pleasant feelings that end unpleasant feelings that end, neutral feelings that end, they pass away. Um, and often it's the ending of something that there's this, this can be quite a subtle sense of grief and loss. It's like a, like a very subtle death. And, and just as in the, the sort of the, on the macro level, there's rebirth going on to the next life as long as there's craving. In the same way, in, in daily life, if we're not wake, awake to this process, the moment there's a, an ending of something, there's the sense of, you know, what, what next? You know, what, what's, what's the, the, you know, number one question of meditators when their mind becomes, what do I do next? You know, um, what's next? And, and so we're always looking for the next thing. And we're, we're not aware of the effect of endings. And so being in the present moment, you say, yeah, this, this ends. And it's sad. Yeah, there's the sadness of ending. Um, and, and it's through being willing to open the mind to the sadness inherent in our life as human beings, the very, the small little sadnesses that make up a normal daily life. But when we become willing to awaken to that sadness, then we develop a strength and an ability to deal with the, uh, the major separations uh, in our life. And, and they, don't be, they don't seem so frightening or desperate, uh, or fearful. Um, it's not that they don't affect us, but we feel this is the very same thing that we're seeing moment by moment in our life, just on a, a bigger scale. It's not something, you know, from somewhere else. It's not alien or strange or um, 
completely unexpected. It's the same thing, exactly the same thing. When we're separated from those we love, when we're separated from good health, uh, when we're separated from all that we love and like, it's just the same thing that's going on on a very small, subtle level on every day, every minute of our life. So it's not this like this mystic be in the now. It's like when you're in the now, when you're in the present moment, and you're in the present moment with this wise uh, wakefulness, then you begin to observe, and and the. And it's not that you're, you're consciously looking for things. It, the things are coming right there for you to see. Oh, this is how things arise. This is how things pass away. This is what happens when things pass away. This is how we feel. And that restlessness and that sense of lack and loss and wanting the next thing. And when we begin to focus on that, observe it more clearly, then that knowledge stays with us and we begin to see how it manifests um, in all areas of our life. So looking and listening. This the 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 um the Buddha's great disciples are called the Savakas, the listeners. You know, so how do, learning how to listen, listen to your heart. And often it's like the voice we have this voice of wisdom. In within us, um, but we don't hear it because we're so tuned in to all this loud noise around us. But when we tune down that loud noise, then often uh, we're surprised at how wise we are. You know, they, you stop just for a while, you say, and suddenly you realize, yeah, this is really not very, uh, very, I shouldn't really be doing this. Oh, yeah, this is something I should really. Um, where does that come from? It's, it's like it's there already, but you're, you're so hooked into communicating with other people that you've forgotten how to communicate with yourself. Um, and so making that a goal of quietening down all that noise and being present to what's going on uh, with the attitude of the student, the learner. So the arahant is called the Aseka Pugala, the graduate. And everyone else except for arahant are still students. Uh, there are things that we need uh, to study. There are things that we need to learn. And no one else uh, can do this for us. Um, no matter how much our family members love us, how much um, they would do for us, the most important things in life we have to do for ourselves. And this is the work that we need to um, devote ourselves to and finding that kind of motivation. How do you sustain that kind of motivation? to be doing this day in, day out, even though um, you don't see such huge progress. It's obviously, you need that faith and confidence um, in, uh, in the past. You have the examples of, of the great teachers who 
and you're not saints from from birth and um, they they realize what they realize through effort um, and Ajahn Chah would would say this again and again he said I started off no no different from any of you but I just kept at it I was patient I never gave up um, so one of my my, um, my my favorite stories of a monk uh, who's walking on Tudong and there's an old lady by the side of the road. And he said, Grandma, Grandma, how long will it take me to get to the mountain? And she she ignores him. She's she's knitting or something. And and he says, Grandma, Grandma, how far will it take me to get to the mountain? And she doesn't say anything. Grandma, three times, this Buddhist monk, three times, Grandma, Grandma, how far do you think? She pays no attention. So he's walking on, and then she says, uh, about three or four days. And he turns back, and he said, why, why didn't you answer when I asked you? He said, well, I had to see how fast you were walking and how determined you were <laughs> before I could answer. But the, um, the practice is one of uh, enjoying um, the path. You know, don't, you know, don't wait for some happiness in the future. Learn how to enjoy and appreciate and rejoice in the path itself and in the virtues that you're developing. If you're sitting for half an hour and you're, and you're, uh, and you're agitated uh, and it's really tough, um, then afterwards, you know, reflect on the causes of that to try to um, prevent um, th that happening again to what extent you can. But at the same time, just appreciate that's not easy, you know, to sit there for half an hour, even though you're really agitated and not get up and not make excuses. You've developed a, a sense of uh, you know, that patient endurance and resilience and, and not giving up. So there are always um, qualities that we can be developing and and learn and to uh, learn to appreciate and to rejoice in them. So I um, would like to wish all of you um, the uh, the patience and effort and joy in practice and all the results of the practice for your own welfare and for the welfare happiness of your families and your communities and for um, uh, for the growth and well-being of all the monastics and lay supporters of this monastery Dolot Garanadha <laughs> <laughs> Sato, Sato, Sato.